The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora katoa and welcome to Business is Boring. A few months ago, a wonderful video was shared by Rocket Lab of panels inflating and unfolding atop a small satellite in space. It was the first space outing for an ingenious tech solution started by three 21-year-old Auckland Uni students who came up with the breakthrough idea in a uni competition and then put uni on pause to make it happen. Thea Jones is one of those co-founders and is the CEO of their company, Asterix Astronautics, and she joins us now to chat loving space, making ideas into reality for the hardest conditions off the planet, and what's next. Tanakwe, thank you for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey, tell me about your love of science and space and technology, and how you kind of kept that alive from being interested in it young to then making these cool things happen in space. I've always been in love with physics in particular. It's always been my worst subject. So I think just working so hard on it and then finally understanding concepts, it felt quite rewarding. In fact, going into physics at uni, my parents were so worried for me. They were like, what are you going to do with a physics degree? And I was like, I don't know, anything. And they were like, what does a physicist do? (laughs) And we were like, we think about things, we test things, and then we do things. And that wasn't very specific. So they were always quite worried. Actually, in my first year of uni, I tried so many different kinds of papers. I did an architecture paper, a drama paper, a random engineering paper. Like I tried all these different um, cohorts and subjects and even in like business and art. Um, And physics was the only one that I really loved, despite it being probably the hardest and not the great, not the best of grades in comparison to all the others. But I kind of just stuck with what I really enjoyed. And it was the only thing I wanted to pour my time into. And how about space? What was the kind of, um, has space always been something that's been a fascination for you? Weirdly, not really. Not until I got to uni. We had, and it was advertised in our classes when we were in second year physics. Um, There was this program called Auckland Program for Space Systems. And it was, uh, you design a mission, it's a 100k challenge. The whole point of the competition is to find a way to benefit humanity from space. And you got to use this really cool space lab and do literally whatever you wanted and tinker away and then come up with ideas. And I fell in love with space and with space tech then. Yeah, wow. Tell me about that competition. Like, how did that come about? So I actually dragged quite a few of my friends into the competition when we heard about it. Um, They leave you with the constraint of one U. So that's like one litre squared, uh, one litre, 10 by 10 by 10 centimetres, a cube. And you could do literally whatever you wanted. We had all these random different ideas like detecting helium isotopes off the moon or just like doing weird novel tech in space. Um, And then something that we found was 
with whatever ambitious type of mission that we wanted to do, power was always a problem. And if we wanted a deployable array, it would cost so much that we were better off like upsizing our satellite. And so when we reached out to other people, we were like, hey, we're encountering this terrible problem. What are you guys doing about it? And they turn around and tell us like, oh, we just like turn it off and then let it recharge and then turn it back on. And we're like, what do you mean turn it off and turn it on? And they're like, yeah, our systems are only operating like 5 to 10% of the time in orbit. And we were like, this is a joke. Surely not. Like, this is not the high-tech space industry that I thought it was. Um, It was kind of a weird realization. Like, tech in space is like 50 years behind of tech on Earth, basically. And we were just like, this can't really be a solution. We actually finished that competition by submitting a power system. Um, And then we tried to write about how that would benefit humanity from space. Our lectures were like, absolutely not. That is not <laughs> that is not the point of this competition. And then we kind of segued out of that and jumped and in, hopped into a business competition afterwards because we saw an opportunity to help other people with their satellite systems. Yeah, wow. Tell me a bit more about the that problem there. So it, it's kind of like one of those um, almost catch-22 situations, isn't it, where you can't have uh, bigger... Um, payloads without more power, but then the weight and well, mass and uh, you know complexity of getting bigger power systems means that it's heavier and it always just kind of stays in step of difficulty. Hey? Yeah, it, you kind of like you kind of get trapped in this like technical death loop. It's like you make the system more power condensed. It's like you've got all these thermal prop- uh, issues with it now, and it's like you're kind of stuck in that same loop of, oh, we can't really improve. We saw not just like high power being an issue in the industry, but also like you use gallium arsenide cells, traditional deployment mechanisms. Even though they were highly efficient, you have this extreme high cost problem. The time delay to get the arrays, like you have to order a power system a year before you get it. And then with Constellation satellites, They're trying to go from tens to hundreds or thousands of satellites annually. And it's like they're encountering this problem where they can't quite grow to the next stage. And so we call that the little death loop. The way that we try to avoid this is by giving them this alternative product that suits what their lifetime, what their mission is, like the power they need and how we approach that. So that's where the inflatable deployment system came through. So we just, rather than having all these mechanical moving parts that push out a very, very large surface area, we basically have like a blow-up mattress that pushes out solar arrays or silicon solar cells, yeah. And so the solar arrays, so they'd be like physical panels that would kind of mechanically unfold and they'd be reasonably heavy as a result and lots of moving parts. Is that right? And then your version, it inflates like a mattress, like you said, and then the cells are on top of the front of the the mattressy material. And so it's like lighter, fewer moving parts, fewer points of failure, I imagine. Yeah, we just have one inflatable system and a single valve moves air floods into the system and it's open and then we have a rigidization system take over so it hardens and then it can't move again and so that was our approach of just using all these like chemical processes to achieve this rather than all these hinges that have to lock into place like if you can imagine it's in space 
the air starts being pushed into the system and then everything unfolds and it's like kadunka dunk dunk and like everything kind of just like folds out. That's essentially what it is. Yeah. It's so simple. And then when you say the rigidization, is that like a chemical process or something that hardens it? Or? Yeah, so for our first ones, we're just using a UV resin and it just cures in sunlight. And then it's hard and you've got the cells and it, yeah. yeah. And so what kind of like order of like is that an order of magnitude kind of lighter and better or what what does it what does it allow? And how big's the problem? Like how many satellites are, are there being used and up there at the moment that, that this would work for? So um there are currently roughly about eight thousand to ten thousand satellites in orbit right now in space. And over the past two years three to 4,000 of those satellites were launched. So over the past two years, we've made up an immense amount of that quantity. That scale is continuing to grow exponentially so much that the market is finding it hard to predict what the volume of satellites is going to be in. We had, uh, we saw nine constellation companies applied to the FCC in November last year, and they applied to launch 38,000 satellites. Now, not all of those are going to be approved, but it kind of reflects it reflects that growth that we're seeing and like 8,000 versus 38,000 yeah. over the next like five, eight years. That's insane. That's a huge difference. Um, and so there's a very big change and turning point and there's a very different mindset that's going on behind the tech. So rather than your huge satellites that are going to be in space for 10 plus years, you now have satellites of the size of your coffee mug that are sitting in low earth orbit and they're only going to be there for three to five years. And so it's better because you have a larger quantity of satellites that are collectively operating on a singular mission together. And so if a third of that fleet in space fails, you're totally fine. You have two thirds of your fleet that is still operating on the mission. If your $10 billion satellite that you spent 15 years building fails in space within one to two, you have wasted so much money and so much time and you've essentially gotten no return out of it. So it's about being able to deploy new technology, being able to take more risks in space and fail less hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah. it. I love it. And that ability to then, um, does does your array also then mean that you solve that problem of people having to power down for big periods of time? Does it mean you get kind of um, more utility out of the satellites too? So because, um, because we're seeing these satellites with shorter lifetimes, they're able to adopt silicon. Silicon is nowhere near as amazing as gallium arsenide cells. But gallium arsenide cells, extremely expensive, like 27% efficiency. Those satellites are going to burn up after three to five years. They don't need them um, and they don't want them because of such a ridiculously long process of waiting for them. So we have this alternative product that has a much, much shorter lifetime, but it doesn't matter. Um, and so we're able to provide them with these systems significantly faster than what they have at the moment. And so you and your co-founders kind of like found this, you know, in, in a in a competition that was saying, hey, what could satellites do that would be good for, for Earth? And you're like, hey, satellites are the actual thing that needs improving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you went and turned that into a, um, a business idea. Tell me about that process. And um, yeah, like, because 
that, that's an enormous number of kind of problems to solve in a short amount of time. Yeah. So when we made that initial switch, it was so difficult for us to wrap our my like wrap our heads around product market fit. And I know that it's very cliche and everyone says it, but like you need to solve the customer's problems. And we thought we knew them, but we didn't. So like our very first power system that we designed, it actually used a large inflatable sphere. And then at the diameter of the sphere that was perpendicular to the satellite, sorry, that was parallel to the satellite, uh, we had a Fresnel lens that would deploy and pull out. And so that would focus a lot of light onto thermionic electric converters. And so those are like two plates and it basically just converts heat energy to electrical energy. Like a, and like was, a magnifying glass yeah, kind of Yeah, kind of like a magnifying glass on two middle plates that generate electricity. And so that was a really cool idea. And it, we thought it was great because you could avoid using solar cells, which are which kind of suck in the industry at the moment. But so many other kinds of problems came when we did that. So we would have so much thermal energy and it's like, how do we dissipate this heat when you can really only use radiation? And then with the pointing accuracy, like if you want to focus light onto a very specific point, you've got to be like basically one to two degrees of facing the sun. And it's like, we can't achieve that accuracy. It's not good for, <laughs> for the satellite. It doesn't make sense. Um, and so we went on a really big journey of like properly trying to understand the industry, asking really, really stupid questions and just not trying to force our really cool tech onto people, but understand what their problems are and then, like, take that on. Uh, yeah. And your physics and problem-solving and leadership of uh, the company is augmented by your co-founders and you've got... What are, what are their kind of skill sets around the kind of the engineering and the chemical side of the problem as well? Max and Will are, like, techie geniuses. Like, in terms of just, like, pure physics and tinkering and just, like relentless testing. They're actually like really good. I couldn't do what they do. So Will's main role is overseeing the complete design of it. And basically my my role is going out in the industry, understanding what our customer requirements are, what their conditions are, um, just doing a ridiculous amount of research and then obtaining the resources that Max and Will need to be able to build this product. And so Will aligns his tech goals with our business goals, customer requirements and such. And then Max and Will work really well together trying to solve these problems that we encounter. And so Max, his, I feel bad for him, he's like both of our assistants. He's like <laughs> helping both of us constantly, um, really juggling all the hats there for him. And we kind of just do this together. Our roles like bleed into each other, each other's roles at the moment. They're not very clearly defined. And it's because we've just worked so closely for the past three years now. And when you say, you know, my role is to go out and get the resources to deploy this, like that kind of thing. Tell me about taking this idea, um, which is, you know, really new and a really quite established industry. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of satellite launches been going for a long time. How did you go as a group of uni students and raise that first $500,000 that allowed you to to test out the idea. Because that, that kind of sounds like a whole lot of money, um, I imagine, if you're you know coming from um, uni student land. But in the space industry, $500,000 must be like, I don't know, the pencil budget. Yeah, it's, it's 
pennies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's really funny is before we raised this 500k, we actually pitched our idea to Peter Beck from Rocket Lab. And he thought it was really cool. We had this like little blow up thing that we took up into his office. It consisted of a car battery, um, a bike pump. We had we didn't have solar cells, but we had little cut out cardboard pieces that we stuck onto these rubbish bags that we like cut up and taped back together. Like it was really freaking ugly. And we 3D printed this box that it was going to deploy out of. Um, and so we blew that up on his glass table in front of him. It literally looked like trash. And <laughs> he was like, this is awesome. How much money do you need? We said $15,000. We thought, he was like, how much money do you need to put this into space? And my dumb ass, $15,000. <laughs> like after, I'm so glad we didn't take on a lot of money then because it was, it was still like VC money as well. And we had literally no idea what we were doing. Um, we learned really quickly how stupid that was. Um, and then Pete was like, I asked him later, I was like, why don't you tell me? He was like, I was like, you knew, Pete. You knew that wasn't enough money. And he was like, well, you were going to figure it out. Like, why should I tell you? I'll just let you have it and have a go. And then because we'd spent so much time tinkering with such little money, like we went on that 15K for a year. We spent it on literally only R&D. We also joined other competitions where we could get funding, like a little bit of grant money. And so we were playing with like 60K for that year. By the end of it, we had a very well-defined idea of what our product should look like and what we wanted to spend that money on. So by the time we got the 500K, it was kind of like, okay, we're going to beeline to doing this. And so we didn't spend that much time like mucking around, tinkering R&D because we'd been like tinkering before on like a really bad budget, like a really, <laughs> really sad budget. And we'll be back in a moment with Fia Jones to hear how they took that investment and tested their idea in space. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step -step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. So let's recap. You got the funding to test out if you could actually build it. How did you actually get it to space to test? And what was that like? So with the 500k budget, it's still really small, especially to go from nothing to flight qualification um, or flight heritage. We were still, in some sense, bootstrapping and literally riding the shoulders of giants. Like for doing the qualification testing, we went into Rocket Lab after, our, after hours 
we had some people there help us out and then we'd do the vibration testing, the vacuum testing, all of that kind of stuff. That, that really reminds me of Peter Beck's story of uh, working in the evenings at Fisher and Paykel and oh, DSR yeah. and everywhere that he worked uh, <laughs> to do all that stuff out of hours. Doing everything in the Callahan building in the basement. We were actually in that room last year. It's a tiny little dungeon. It's kind of sad and sad there. But just having like, we, we okay, we hired a room. Uh, we rented out a room down in the basement there. And it was like a storage closet that they took all the stuff out of so that we would have a space to use. And we just did everything on an extreme budget. And everything that we didn't have or couldn't obtain in time, we were calling our friends and asking them, can we please have this? Can we please use that? We were still begging with that 500K. Like, it, it wasn't a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. it's nothing in the scheme of space stuff. Yeah, I know. And, and Rocket Lab became investors uh, in, in the company, mm-hmm. and then they gave you a spot on a launch to test in space. So you tested it in the vacuums, and it, and it, and it all kind of worked. You, you know, like, what, what's it like when this thing that you've worked on and, and built so hard and, you, you know... Um, done on such a smell of an oily rag and then it's sitting in a rocket and it's going to go to space and it's going to deploy live. Like, how does that feel? Shitting bricks. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, like, when you compare looking at the other payloads that are going on and then you see the facilities that they've been using and, you know, even with COVID, you know, we had three months where we were building this in our bloody kitchens. Like, our payload that was that went into space was on all of our kitchen benches at one point in time because we just had to keep going when we were at home. And I I can't believe it worked. Oh, I can. Like we did, we went through a horrendous amount of tests. But I think when it finally did go into space, it was just so relieving. Like it, we, before the lockdown, we'd been telling everyone that we were three to four months away from launching every single month for the past like, six, seven months right up until we launched. We were like, we're four months away. We're four months away. We're four months away. And after a point in time, you're like, are we really four months away? And so like on the day of the launch, I thought I would be so excited and so hyped. I actually had COVID and I was in a hotel room overseas, so I didn't get into go into mission control. But just pure relief and then just like being able to re-energize when you're done. It's like, okay, it worked. I'm going to sleep. <laughs> like, I thought we'd all like be super hyped and in party mode, but like, because we were at the most crucial time for our company for months and it dragged on of like six, seven day work days, it was just, it was so intense. We were so happy to like have it done. And it was majestic, right? Like oh, the yeah, actual, <laughs> if anyone hasn't video, seen the video. You literally see it deploy and open up and there's space, like there's earth yeah. in the back. <laughs> like It's kind of gliding past earth and it's like, whoa, it's in orbit right now. I got to appreciate it afterwards, like later. Oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> if anyone hasn't seen it, jump on uh, to Fia's uh, Twitter feed or Asterix's uh, Twitter feed or, or or Rocket Labs, and you're able to see that little video there. And it's um, it's magic. And and what does that mean now that that's worked? What does that mean for you as a company and for what's happening next? Oh yeah, the video is called Copia has spread her wings. So if you wanted to find it, there you go. Um, so since we launched and got uh, Flight Heritage, essentially, we had 
quite a few customers follow up with us like, that was an amazing launch. Um, we're looking at doing these missions. We're trying to ramp up, you know, the volume and we want to see if you're a good fit. So the way that we're jumping onto these first early adopters is we're just putting our power system on their R&D missions and seeing how well, like we still have to learn how to go through the integration process. It's going to be a bunch more first times for doing things for us. And then after that, if we've done a good job, we're jumping onto the constellations and then we need to figure out how are we going to push out hundreds of power systems when we've literally only done one so far. And it took us like half a year to build one because we were figuring it out. But that's how it works, eh? Like yeah. it's always the hardest the first time. And t- tell me about the environment that you're in around, like, you know, we've mentioned Rocket Lab and, and Peter Beck a few times. And also Outset Ventures, where that um, uh, space is that you're there. And these environments where there are, um, tell me about the environments that exist for turning those hard tech, deep science ideas into like a production model. Like, how do you do that? We're So for the R&D ones, we unfortunately have to make each of them handmade <laughs> until we can figure out an effective production line. And that's kind of something that we'll have to do during our Series A. So we're at our seed round at the moment. With Outset Ventures, they are our lead and we love them so much. Like, we are quite fortunate that we've gotten nice... VCs that have led this first round. Like we've I've I've seen other startups being absolutely like what's another way of saying fucked over? <laughs> That's a really good way okay. of saying it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like I've seen other startups like just be absolutely fucked over by their first VCs. They say that they're going to provide them with all of this help and they take a large cut of equity. And in the end, they only give them funding and they're like, hey, update us, you know, later. We haven't had that. With Outset, we moved into their building. We were paying a very, very cheap rate at first when we only had the 500K. They were aware of how little funding that was for the industry that we're, we're going into. And so they provided us with the help, the network, the testing. They now have a shake and bake room down in the basement now. And part of setting that up was for helping us. So well, they well, have... Also, a, what's the shake and bake room? So for? they have like a communal vibration table down in the basement and also a thermal cycling chamber. So it can, you know, we can put our box inside their chamber it'll go all the way up to like 180 degrees and then go down to like negative 80 and then if we want to go down to much lower temperatures we kind of just like put our thing in a bucket and dip all this liquid nitrogen on top and then just make it cold yeah <laughs> well, it, it, it's like i went for a, um, a walk around the space the other day and it's like willy wonka's chocolate factory for oh, people who like science so cool my favorite part about the building is like you go out into the kitchen for a cup of coffee or you go there to eat lunch and there's all these other founders and guys there from all these other different kinds of companies you've got like Virtus energy energy bank helicobio like Denison Technologies, they're all in the same building. Like, you know, in uh, when you live as a student in a hall for uni, it's like that, but with tech companies. Like, every single room has some random, cool, deep tech startup in it, um, and I love it so much, especially because 
Our team is so small. The three of us see each other every single day. We sometimes get really, really sick of each other, especially after like really long work days. So it is so nice to be in a building where we can see other people. Or if I need some help, I walk out of my office, like walk to the other side of the communal room. And I'm like, hey, Angus. So Angus is our director um, as well. And I'm like, hey, Angus, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you look at this, please? And then for chasing ups, I don't get aggressive emails. He like knocks on my door like, hey, what are you doing? I really need this. (laughs) And it's really nice and casual. And it takes away from everything feeling like you're in this like high stress hierarchy kind of thing going on. Like we're all working together because it's in our best interest that we succeed and in their best, best interest that we succeed. So we're getting like so much help. It's ridiculous. It's such a cool and model. So yeah. And like the the resources there with all of the different kind of labs and the engineering and like the um the the biosafe labs and it's 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 bananas. And yeah. it's so crazy to think that they've funded that all like privately essentially. Uh and it's not like a um <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's insane, yeah. right? And so okay, one 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 little story about like going above and beyond for like your startups. So the week of so the week that we were integrating the satellite into Rocket Lab, I was flying to um, the US for a conference in Colorado. Will unfortunately got COVID, and then Max got really really sick. And so even though Max didn't have COVID, Rocket Lab doesn't let you into their facilities if you're sick. Full stop because of the pandemic. Our satellite, um, we couldn't fly it down to Mahia because. We had these restrictions, like there was a pressurized canister on it. And even though it was safe to go in a rocket to bloody space, like in New Zealand didn't want to take on my fucking payload. So we had Angus. So Angus is our director. I felt so bad. But I sent um, Angus drove seven hours with his mate um, to Mahia to go through the integration progress, the whole process by himself. Um, and he, he was integrating our payload on a video call with Max and Will, who were like ridiculously sick, and I was overseas. So, um, yeah, good props to him going above and beyond for us. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, and it's so cool hearing about you know the people who are acting as um, supporters, like like Angus and like um, you know Peter Beck and and that. Kind of, you know, here's 15k, work it out, uh, and really, really backing um, you and the team so much. What misconceptions do people see about that journey? So, when we've seen the way that um, I've described asterisks in the media and our journey, a lot of things are very exaggerated, and so it, it misses out on a lot of like details on the way. And something that I cannot stand hearing is like, "Oh, you guys are so lucky! Like, imagine if you never met Peter Beck." And it's like, no, I, if we didn't meet Peter Beck that one time that we did meet him, I would have still met him anyway. Like I didn't meet him by coincidence. I was stalking him, right? (laughs) He has an active Twitter feed. I was looking at the events he was going to, and then I was trying to meet him and give myself these opportunities. And even if I wasn't able to bombard him, I would have found a way to have someone else introduce me to him. And it's like, I see how you think a lot of these are luck-based, but, like, I think a lot more of that comes down to, like, pure, like, persistence and resilience and, like, genuinely going for something until you get it. 
And if you're not getting something, it's like, oh, maybe we should reflect on why this isn't happening and then, you know, follow up with that and figure it out. So it's it, it's a constant learning process for us and it's really hard. But even though we have a lot of help, it's also because we ask for help. You know, we're not doing this by ourselves. We know we can't do this by ourselves. We're constantly outsourcing, begging for re- materials and resources and never, ever doing any of this by ourselves. Yeah. And it's such a cool environment that has been set up there that, that there is this support. But it kind of sounds to me that, you know, you would have found a way to do it. <laughs> yeah, like on your kitchen table if it was required. Yeah. Yeah. No, we totally would have. But um, kind of just trying to do things like as quickly and as cheaply and use other people's resources yeah. rather than our own. And it's so... Um, there was that magic interview that you did on Breakfast uh, TV, and uh, it was really—it's really funny to see how the media always goes for a shorthand day. Eh? So, like, it's—it's—it's it's, it's probably not kind of malicious as much as just kind of like um, sensationalist laziness. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of like, you know, they're like, "Well, you need dropout," and you're like, "Hey, I'm not a dropout. I'm just put it on pause." Oh my gosh. And it's like, "You need dropout for your Jones," and you're like, "No, I'm still doing a paper." <laughs> <laughs> and like, no, you're a uni dropout. Oh my gosh, they love, love their yeah. like Silicon Valley stories and trying to draw those parallels here. Like, if we didn't have this company, I would still be a full time student. I'm doing one paper at a time right now. It's going to take me six bloody years to finish my three year degree, but it's totally fine. I still want my piece of paper. Um, and just. Yeah, it's highly exaggerated. <laughs> so, and and well, to tell tell us about like um, the what, what was the thing with the front page with, with the paper? Oh, so one of the papers in the New Zealand Herald was, or maybe it was NBR. I'm not sure. It said uni student dropout raises 500k, <laughs> backed by Peter Beck, or some kind of like heading like that, and I hadn't. I hadn't really told my family yet that I dropped out of uni. And so my mom's she's like up five o'clock in the morning, early bird. The papers come out at like 6 a.m. I'm kind of the person who like goes to bed at like 2 a.m. and wakes up at 8. Um, and she was, she spammed my phone with calls. She was like, what's going on? She's like, did you really drop out of uni? Oh, congratulations. Da, 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 500K. So proud of you, honey. But did you really drop out of uni? And I was like, oh, well, uh, I kind of just like put it on pause. And she was like so proud of me. But she was quite mad at me at the same time for like not telling her more than anything else. And it was this, oh, it was like, yeah, I probably should have told her before the papers came out. But I didn't like. I knew it was going to be in the story. I just didn't think it was going to be the title. You know, like <laughs> drop out first thing that they mention. If, uh, and so, just to clarify for future stories, not a dropout doing papers. Still <laughs> one paper at a time. It's going to take a miserably long time, but I'll get there. Yeah, but yeah, like just put a little um, pinprick in that kind of narrative there. <laughs> and um, yeah, like. What would your advice be? A couple of questions that we, we like to ask everyone. Like, what would your advice be for people who have found an idea that seems to be kind of bananas that no one else was kind of solving that in the industry, hey? And, like, if you if you found an idea, um, yeah, what would your advice be for someone thinking about starting a company or making an idea real? 
I think that starting a company is so difficult in general. Like you have to just ask for help. You have to like go out there into the industry that you want to go in, go to networking events, say hello to as many, like make yourself super uncomfortable asking for help. Your questions are going to be stupid questions. It's totally fine. You just need to ask them as soon as possible. And especially if you're going into an industry that is high barrier to entry, whether it's space tech or med tech or something else, having an expert in that field back you, especially because like when you go to VCs, a lot of them, even though they might have experience in tech, no one's going to be an an expert as well as you are if you do your research really well. And so just that confidence for them and that reassurance like for yourself as well, that what you're doing is a really good idea and it's really useful in the industry and you just need to figure your stuff out. Yeah. Ask for help. Get someone to back you. Get someone who wants to publicly back you as well. And then go from there. Yeah. Awesome. And as a final thought, what will success be for you and for the company? So in the short term, we're pushing away from R&D and going into production. I would love to see our device copia on these first few commercial flights. Even if the even if, if if a few of them fail, just like on the larger basis it's still being like a super ideal product for constellations and then just seeing it on hundreds of fleets or hundreds of satellites in general. Yeah. Ah, that's so cool. Uh, I can't wait to see what you make happen next and thank you so much for coming and sharing your story with us today. (laughs) That's Fia Jones, co-founder and CEO at Asterix Astronautics. So thank you to Fia Jones, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Te Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. And keep an eye out for Going Global in your Business is Boring feed, our new podcast with NZTE. Enohora. From the Spinoff Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.